Debriefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. Biases are part of our day-to-day thinking and decision-making. There are also future fallacies that swing us from envisioning, using those terms, realistic futures in an effective and efficient manner. These are common errors we'll fall trap of while reasoning on those futures. Today, I'm joined by Ivana Milojevic, Director at Meta Futures and Meta Futures Schools, who has extensive experience in researching and experimenting on the subject matter. Welcome, Ivana, and thank you for joining me at the briefing today. Thank you so much, Mattia, and greetings from Australia. It is wonderful to have you here, Ivana. Last year, UNESCO ran the Futures Literacy Summit. The objective was to spread the concept of futures literacy and its underlying thinking. Indeed, the motto was to go beyond the poverty of imagination. Yet, when we think about the futures, there are important influences to consider, which can twist that very action of hypothesizing the future and how we can use it. These influences are in some way detrimental to the thinking, and we refer to them as futures fallacy. Uh, sometimes I think about futures fallacies as a cross between logical fallacies and what Barbara Tupman described as historical folly. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh, when we look at the future, of course, it's an open space. Of course, we don't know what the future will bring. At the same time, sometimes we think about the future in slightly detrimental ways. And what I mean by that is that Futures fallacies are thinking patterns that stand in direct contradiction to a truly desired long-term future. Um, What hit me was long time ago when one of my family members, who was a heavy smoker, I think uh, he was smoking three packs per day, he actually, at the age of 43, got uh, heart issues and uh, had to have two stents. And what I noticed is that he was genuinely shocked at what happened to him. So I was wondering how and why is that happening? Because we actually had discussions for years about dangers of smoking. And I remember him always saying that he wants to enjoy his life in the present. He doesn't care about the future. But then when the event actually happened, he was truly shocked because he always assumed that the future is going to be out there. Future is not something that will catch up with us. It will never become the present moment. It's something that is out there. And I think lots of us have that perception of the future as something vague, as something that is not tangible, as something that we will never, ever experience. But all these future moments eventually come back and we experience them in the present moment. So this is something that started me thinking about why certain warnings that we've been very well aware from decades, for example, about climate change, about global warming, why are we not acting in accordance to those warnings? Why are we not doing more? With COVID-19 as well, I've written a couple of uh, articles last year where I looked at preparedness I looked at the role of foresight and the response by the government sector. And my initial hypothesis and assumption was that the better we prepared, 
would be kind of uh, contingent on whether foresight was put in place or not, and that was and wasn't the case. At one level, it was the case. For example, in Australia, they did some modeling and they found based on those modeling that the best case scenario was 50,000 people dying. Um, that is population of 26 to 25 uh, to 26 million or worst case scenario of 150,000 people dying. So they put certain measures in place and government responded and listened to experts at the time. However, since then they've been on one track. There was one response, one future, and they were not able to actually become more flexible in terms of that. So in terms of climate change and environmental degradation that we are facing, at the same time, we know and do not know. So uh, our knowing about the future is very vague. It's not tangible. We can't even imagine what it means. And then when it hits us, we kind of tend to get shocked or say we are really surprised and these are unprecedented times and we go into denial, even though there were so many warnings about COVID and the pandemic at the, by the global bodies, by national bodies. I have a whole five, six pages of those warnings in that one particular article listed. So futures fallacies, the way I understand them, are about these thinking patterns that stand in direct contradiction to a truly desired longer term future. So we want to have healthy bodies, we want to have good environments, and yet we are engaging in practices that are in direct contradiction to those things to those uh, truly desired longer term futures. As well, they are thoughts and behaviors that are contrary to our best existing evidence, facts and logic of relevance to emerging futures. And they are cognitive frames that ensure chosen strategies fail. What do I mean by that? There are certain how would I say it? Um, causes and consequences. And there is something we don't know um, we can't really truly say about the future, we can't predict it, but there are certain things that we know. Uh, for example, I believe you are um, a skier, yeah, Mattia, yes. and uh, adventurer. <laughs> so there would be many uh, parts of Europe that have these um, disaster plans in terms of preventing avalanche. So we don't know exactly when the avalanche is going to happen and how it's going to happen, but there is a certain range of strategies that are put in place to prevent high cost to our human lives, property, as well as environment. Now, with certain other phenomena, such as climate change, for example, uh, we are not doing so well. And my question initially was to understand why this is so? Why are we not being able to um, kind of engage in certain decisions that are bridging those logical fallacies and uh, rational policy response or what we know that is happening and then refusing to act in accordance to what we know? So that was my question. And this is how I started investigation into futures fallacies initially. Thank you, Ivana, for bringing up also some, some numbers and sharing uh, current experiences, current situation, current scenarios that are maybe far away for, for many because uh, related to, to Australia, but still the context uh, could sound familiar to many. Um, you also bring up some quite important uh, terminology like preparedness, flexibility, denial, and I very like 
what you're saying as a as a concept of abstraction which um, could inform our decision and could leverage reinforce our preparedness in case something happens by hypothesizing in different futures we can create and simulate possible uh, scenarios and how those might unfold and what might be the cause and consequences that you mentioned just uh, just before um, those are actually going to support the decision when something happens yes so there is a question for example when the covid first started people were saying oh it's just the flu now no one says for avalanche is just the snow uh, or is just snow people are not saying that so why are they saying it about covid because it's something new for most people even though it's not new for us as human species there was uh, this debate in terms of the pandemic whether it's something that is unprecedented some people were saying that they were shocked these were unprecedented times and then other people were saying well actually pandemics are as certain as death and taxes uh, this is something that humans have been experiencing like since we probably became aware of ourselves. So there is some contradiction there. And there are, I believe, certain ways uh, about how we, it's a cognitive dissonance when we look into certain futures issues that we, as I said, know and not know at the same time, and then not even act on what we do know. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I was doing, uh... Um, a research on disaster management a few years ago and um, mm -hmm. and investing on in preparedness can reduce the by 67 percent the damage of the possible impact you know um so preparedness is very important in um, in trying to to mitigate the damage and and also maybe avoid the the damage at all um so um so back, but so if, if you're talking about future fallacy and we you know we are trying to understand something that is it is in the futures but as you said before we don't we cannot predict the futures we can only hypothesize the the futures um how many future fallacy are there and you know how can we try to understand them that we are um falling trap of any of those yeah, well, that's a very good question, because I think with logical fallacies, um, philosophers have identified over 200 or something, and it doesn't matter that they have identified them, we still engage in them on a regular basis. For example, argumentum ad hominem has been identified as a logical fallacy centuries and centuries ago. And still when people argue, they're going to attack the person and not the argument. Uh, so that happens, even though we know that they exist, we still engage in them. And I was uh, reading the work of um, some uh, psychologists and um, experts in behavioral economics, for example, the work by Dan Ariely, who is talking about uh, how we are all irrational, but predictably so. So there are certain hidden forces that shape our decisions, which is the title and subtitle of his book. But we can actually anticipate that this is what we are going to do when we are in certain circumstances. So conspiracy thinking is quite common 
in times of crisis. It, it's quite common when we don't understand causes and consequences. It's quite common when um, we have this template of us and them, blaming certain groups of people for something. And uh, it's quite common when people feel disempowered. So we know that there are certain conditions that facilitate certain fallacies. And what I've done is I just outlined some of them. I'm sure there are many more than them. And we can argue that some of the logical fallacies are also connected in a way we perceive the future. But I wanted to specifically explore the way we see the future uh, in some of those skewed ways. Uh, for example, like that family member of my, uh, who mm -hmm. couldn't envision that he would eventually become sick because future was out there. So what is that? You know, what is that? What do we do? What kind of cognitive bias exists there? And what kind of uh, cognitive frame we put in place to protect us? So those are all some cognitive frames that we put in place to protect us because we don't want to know certain truths like uh, Al War wrote about inconvenient truths. Sometimes we like to be deluded. And that delusion is helping us. It's protecting us. It's protecting our frames of knowing which then may hurt us long-term. And that's the whole point because we are trying to balance short-term with um, long-term thinking. What I did in some of those articles was really look at fallacies in terms of how we perceive the future that are very well established in psychological literature. As futurists, we have some kind of inclination to recognize them when we see them, or we have a hint as to what future fallacy may be, short-termism, for example. We can recognize that, but in psychological literature, they were actually measuring some of those fallacies in laboratory conditions, and they were all based on evidence and psychological research that took place. So there would be many of them, but I kind of really focused on, I think, 10, and even that is probably too many, but uh, just 10, because I thought that was a nice number. Yes, I like number 10 as well. <laughs> also, <laughs> being a passionate of, of soccer and, and, you know, number 10 has always been the, the best player and the one that has always been playing for, for that team. That, we, we don't see that nowadays, but in the past, you know, number 10 was number 10. So out of those <laughs> yes. number 10, um, what are your top three? What's your top, you know, uh, favorite top three of, um, of the future? Yes, I, I actually like uh, future personal exemption, which is uh, what I think uh, the, is the fallacy of being overly optimistic about one's own future despite the realistic or even dystopian take on our collective futures. Jim Dater did a um, survey with his students, his students in the area of futures. And uh, he found out that even though many of them saw that some global trends were going sideways and that we will be seeing more unrest or more environmental degradation, they still felt that their personal futures would be good or better than most other people's futures. So he said they would perceive that the ship is sinking, but they're still the captain on that ship. <laughs> so that's his uh, fallacy of future uh, personal exemption, 
which probably protects us from difficult and inconvenient routes, but it is in the long term hard to sustain because uh, certain things that are happening to other people can happen to us as well. If our environment becomes inhabitable, it's going to be very difficult for us to have a wonderful life that we envision for ourselves. So that future personal exemption happens at a collective level as well. And I think uh, in Western industrial societies, we've seen with COVID-19 that the pandemic always happens somewhere else. So pandemic is something that we hear because of sanitation, because of wealth, because of vaccination, we will be exempt. So pandemics and uh, all those things happen somewhere else and thus, perhaps not enough was done to prevent COVID-19 from actually multiplying and spreading all around the world. So that is one of my favorites. Uh, then uh, obviously the arrival futures fallacy where we envision possible futures as static objects such as destination or goal, rather than a snapshot of an inherently dynamic process. So when I was growing up in the former Yugoslavia, we had this notion of the end of history. So you would have uh, some sort of com you know, change throughout history, but then after capitalism, there would be socialism and then communism, and that would be the end, that would be the end of history. That so that is a kind of uh, notion that assumes certain closure, assumes that when we think about the future, there will be an end point rather than just a snapshot of inherently dynamic process. And the trouble with that is that the cost is reduction of dynamism. Probably the most common futures fallacies are the fallacy of planning, where people overpromise uh, due to an optimistic bias in prediction. The good side of that fallacy is that generates action. So people think they will be able to build a building in a year and then they kind of, it takes them three years, but they still start the process. Maybe if they knew that the process would take three years, they wouldn't start it. So it generates action, but then at the same time, there are certain financial, psychological, social, and temporal costs to that. Uh, fallacy of the planning. Some governments have failed because they overpromised. Uh, those unmet expectations can cost dearly. Or um, the fallacy of linear projection, the error, which is the error of presuming that future change will be a simple and steady extension of past trends. That's quite common. And uh, it's useful because it gives direction, but at the same time, there is inability to accommodate for emerging issues, black swans, something unexpected happening. Uh, that would be the cost to it. Or the one um, that Dor has called Ceteris Paribus fallacy, which is the error of considering only one single aspect of change while holding all else equal. That simplifies complexity. So it's easier to understand what's happening, but then it misses a whole range of other factors. I think uh, the prediction as well in the area of future studies, even uh, as futurists fall um, kind of uh, victims of that because lots of organizations want us to give them some sense of what's coming next and they want to get some certainty. That certainty we know about the future cannot be provided, but nonetheless, people keep on wanting it. The reason for that is that um, 
people believe it's possible to predict the future. And there is a quite uh, um, important distinction between predicting the future and anticipating the future or forecasting a whole range of alternative futures, which we can do, but we cannot really predict it. So the problem with that fallacy is that even though it gives some certainty in the long term, it harms us because um, then comes the cynicism towards futures work. In, when you talk about COVID-19, there were lots of predictions of coming disasters. I don't know whether you've seen the movie Contagion. It's a 211 movie, which was probably 80 to 90% accurate in terms of what happened with COVID-19, but it was recorded a decade before that. So there were lots of predictions. And then some of those we now remember in hindsight because they came through, but there were hundreds and thousands of so-called predictions that never materialized. So when people believe that it is possible to predict the future and that prediction does not materialize, then they become skeptical over warnings they actually are really important. Yeah, and, and hindsight is always uh, um, of course something tricky. Yeah. Yeah, we we've like like innovation as well. It's something that we can define innovation only inside because um, as we as we have that technology that we are developing, there's still no innovation and, and in its nature it's just a development of something new. And then when it is applied and bring benefit to a large group of, of people then can be called innovation and is actually innovative. And then say, oh yes, that, that's a good innovation. But how many other ideas are out there that cannot be called innovation, but just experiment? Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. The future. Yeah, so it's always, yeah, definitely. It's always easier to know retrospectively. It, and But the problem is that belief in uh, the need to plan is really important, but the belief that we can predict the future is the problem, is the fallacy. Not that we can't think about causes and effects, not that we can't anticipate, but believe that we can, for example, going back to the example of the avalanche, that we will know that exactly on 26th of April, they will be avalanche here and there. Sometimes they are warning signs and sometimes it's quite visible. Uh, probably the day before, the closer the future is, maybe if there are already some warning signs, we can tell that with more certainty. But if it's further along into the future, for example, for year 2022, that certainly certainty dissipates because things don't happen just based on one factor. There are always multiple causes and conditions that create a phenomenon. So we know that, and thus it's impossible to predict, not to mention that predictions in themselves change our behavior, which means that we change the future. So it's impossible to predict, and yet lots of people crave that prediction. And as I said, even in our area, sometimes we are asked to maybe not openly predict, but at least in subtle ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I really like also the, the distinction between uh, prediction and, and anticipation, which it's more close to, to preparedness that we were talking before. Yes, definitely. Yeah. How do you see the role of data 
in uh, in predicting uh, and and I'm I'm using prediction purposely because sometimes people use data because there are there are a lot of data you know big data and they say okay yeah we can we can predict something because we have a lot of uh, information related to that but even that sometimes data can be uh, can be misleading the 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 anticipation or, or you know the cause effect yeah but the classic example is Ned Silver's signal and the noise and uh, his book was about why some most predictions fail and some don't and he was arguing that his predictions don't fail because he's using big data and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then if you remember uh, he was predicting that um, Hillary Clinton will be elected president of the United States and that did not happen then uh, later he said well that's actually because people don't understand uh, the way he was talking about this he was saying the likelihood of her winning the election was 87%, which still means that there is 13% chance that she will not win, that um, the other person who is now gone, yeah. <laughs> whose name we will not speak, <laughs> uh, you know, that there is still 13% chance that that other candidate will win. So that people actually misunderstood what he was saying. So that was his argument. And interestingly enough, we can see in terms of predictions, I, I, uh, I think we already mentioned that early into COVID-19, Australian government did some modeling mm -hmm. and uh, they did scenarios. Uh, the best case scenario was 50,000 people dying and the worst case scenario was 150,000 people dying. That was population of 25, 26 million. But then they put certain measures in place and as a result of those measures, so far, 910 people died. So we are not talking about thousands. Um, sadly, I mean, there were still 910 people dying, but now that is less than a thousand and not 50,000 and 150,000. So they run those modeling based on whole range of factors. Those are the figures that they came um, with. And because the figures were so staggering, government was actually pushed into action and government did a whole range of uh, protective measures they put them in place so that's where this is i think the best part of kind of futures thinking put in practice where there are certain warnings and we act on them unfortunately the measures are again short term and uh, probably short-sighted they are not put in place for living in pandemic for next five or 10 years. They were assuming that the vaccine will come very quickly and then that the population will be quickly and easily vaccinated and then uh, that they will be able to reopen the border and the economy. Now that has not happened because a whole range of issues that were difficult to predict a year ago. Um, issues with AstraZeneca vaccine and uh, few, those um, rare but very um, dangerous cases um, of um, thrombosis and blood clotting. And then difficulty in obtaining uh, different types of vaccines. Some of those difficulties are political and economic uh, because Australia is not looking to negotiate something with 
China and Russia, for example, they're focusing on vaccines developed in um, the Western world. So there is obviously already a limited pool, a more limited pool here. Uh, this is the kind of lack of flexibility in long-term thinking. So they were very good with this medical and technical side of things, but probably not so fabulous when we look at second and third and fourth and fifth rate consequences. What does this lockdown mean for tourism industry, education industry, mental health of Australians, people who are dual citizens who can't um, go and um, travel and see their families or who can't have their family members come to Australia. So there, there is a huge cost out there that hasn't been calculated because the focus was on um, one or two variables. Listening from from your words is that um, scenarios uh, was good at the beginning, and then yes. something happened, which is natural because we are a dynamic society. We move forward, mm -hmm. and then new iterative scenarios needed to be made in a way that there were new informations, and those new information should have been put into kind of modeling or you know scenarios exercise to explore and adjust this longer um, longer view and not just to you know, embrace the COVID uh, the pandemic and trying to solve it quite quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and Australia to that extent did a really great job because as you, you, yes. you mentioned some numbers and the numbers are really low yes. compared to the rest of the world, but there is a, a need to iterative and keep evolving that uh, scenarios but this is, I think, two fallacies in one here. We have that Ceteris Paribus fallacy, which is the error of considering only one single aspect of change while holding all else equal. This never happens. We never have just one single aspect of change while everything else is equal. When we have one thing change, usually there are snowball effects to that change. There are other things happening parallel to uh, that one change. So if we are just focusing on number of deaths, that is, you know, we are talking about phenomenal success here comparatively speaking, and it could have been even better success if we didn't have some other fallacies that were playing, uh, that were put in place here. Because of that fallacy of um, uh, future personal exemption, somehow there was a lack of ability to see that people who were coming on those very expensive cruise ships could bring the virus into the country. Because the pandemic, and viruses and bacteria always happen in, in our imagination in these unsanitary poor places. Something such as a luxury boat cruise cannot possibly bring the disease into Australia. So there was some oversight being done there because of some fallacies. And uh, the one that I said in terms of Ceteris Paribus, uh, considering only one single aspect of change while holding all as equal, or the arrival, that somehow Australia will arrive at this moment in time where there is no virus, when the borders are closed, when we are safe, without taking into account that it's actually very difficult to maintain that state indefinitely. So there is no plan at the moment about when the borders will be open. No one is even talking about there are some, not even scenarios. That's not even part of modeling. What's part of modeling is the spread of virus. It's just one factor that is being put in. And that is 
costing us, costing us not just in terms of uh, our long-term well-being, it's costing people right now in Australia who are struggling with their mental health or who are struggling with family disruptions or uh, who are struggling some students, foreign students who cannot get support, who can't leave, who can't um, continue to work or study. So there are lots of costs to certain vulnerable people right now. Uh, and it always depends on where the gaze is and what is the priority and what are the values. If the values are economic costs, if the values are um, just in terms of um, how that virus will not be imported into Australia, mm -hmm. then we are going to create policy responses that reflect that and that they will stay stuck. So right now there is some level of stuckness here in Australia because people don't see the need to get immunized uh, given that there is no community transmission in Australia. And then they will not open up economy and borders fully while everyone is not immunized. <laughs> so it's like a sort of a stalemate. There is a, a certain level of stuckness that is happening because of that assumption that we can arrive to a certain moment where we will say, okay, this is a fantastic success and this is it. And forgetting about all these other variables that are equally important. And so how can we mitigate those future fallacies? What are the antidotes to you know, reduce and be more aware of those future fallacies as we develop uh, future scenarios? Okay, so when we talk about that linear projection fallacy, which is the error of presuming the future change will be a simple and steady extension of past trends, which we see a lot, the antidote obviously is to think in terms of alternative futures, which is the whole area of future studies and what futures do. Um, that linear projection as well, the antidote is understanding what emerging issues analysis is and what black swan phenomenon is. Uh, for example, when we look at that linear projection, this is one example I show uh, to people. If you just project from the past, in the 80s, there was demilitarization trend happening because there was the end of the Cold War. And then 80s and 90s, we've seen uh, quite a big drop in terms of how much money was being spent globally on weapons. But then there was just one event, September 11, that took place and it changed everything. So the trend completely reversed. So if you just look at the kind of past and trends, you, you look at the future in terms of extrapolation from the past and not understand what emerging issues are or what that black swan event can do, then there will certainly be this lack of understanding that the future is open and that we can uh, then see what are some of those alternative futures. In terms of Ceteris Paribus, which is that arrival, or, or sorry, the error of considering only one a single aspect of change while holding all else equal. Futures wheel is an excellent method where we look at multiple consequences. So we start from one event and then we look at the first, second, third 
rate of consequences. And we look at multiple consequences, some of which are going to be positive, some of them are going to be neutral, and some of them are going to be negative. We know with COVID-19 as well that some of those consequences, potential consequences uh, may be beneficial. Um, when initially, the pandemic started, we visibly noticed that the air was cleaner. <laughs> we visibly noticed. So that was incredible that uh, there were some positive changes in that regard. Uh, some people are able to um, organize more flexible work-life arrangements, etc. So pandemics are known to, or, or change like that, big massive change of any kind is known to actually enable us to have some positive um, effects after that. So thinking in terms of alternative futures and then understanding what is neutral, what is negative, what is positive and trying to design strategies towards those positive ones would be one antidote. In terms of the arrival, uh, Mamie's song has invented a method called time machine, which I really enjoy and really like. When you travel back into the past and then you see what are the changes that happened over the last 20, 30 years. When we've done that in workshops, participants are more uh, than kind of inclined to understand that these type of changes will continue in the future. They will not be this one thing that we will achieve and then the future will stop. We will have the end of history. In terms of the planning, and that is very interesting. Um, with the planning, uh, some researchers were saying, even though we know we overpromise and we have this optimistic bias in prediction, we still keep on doing it. So the best thing to do is to um, kind of induce a healthy dose of pessimism, because sometimes with this planning, uh, the whole area is quite optimistic and people who are building certain things are also very optimistic. So introduce a a level of pessimism or include people who are less powerful in a society through participatory futures is something that has shown the most promise. Because policymakers, for example, they come from a certain level of wealth and education, and they seem to see the future in certain terms. And that sometimes is not taking into account uh, perspective of more vulnerable members in the society. Um, in terms of the prediction, the best antidote is, again, looking in terms of uh, alternative futures, critical futures thinking, and then focusing on personal and local futures with enhanced a sense of hope and empowerment. With overinflated and, uh, agency, and I didn't talk about that much, but this is where all this conspiratory thinking comes into play. Some people assume that an individual or a group has all this amazing power, and that really is not the case. Even the most powerful dictators never managed to long-term change everything the way they wanted. So that overinflated agency comes from some, as I was already discussing, from some sense of being um, disenfranchised or disillusioned. So futures can bring a sense of hope when we are working with people. And we ourselves can start thinking, what is my zone of influence? So rather than delegating my power to this group that works in secret, whether they are 
I don't know, Bill Gates or Soros or Masons or Illuminati or Big Pharma, this group that works in secret and gets everything the way they want it, I can start thinking about what is my own zone of influence and engage a little bit more analytical thinking, vision, desire, futures and backcasting, which kind of enhances that sense of influence. So that would be in terms of the work we futurists do, and we do it in our workshops and we do it in our writing and we do it in our research, where we actually start thinking about, okay, so here is future personal exemption. How can I engage in some sort of experiential futures work? There are lots of people that are doing that. They're focusing on some sort of gaming the future or being immersed in the future, remembering the future, um, activities like that, then um, instead of thinking we will be exempt from all these things, we can actually envision uh, us in a particular future. And that is critically important work that has been highlighted by Fred Pollack in the 60s and then Elise Boulding in the 80s. Elise Boulding in particular was talking about how people, when they look into the future, they have their desired vision for the future, but they don't really know what that look like looks like in detail. She was working with peace activists, for example, who couldn't really imagine and envision the world without armies. So what does that mean? If you can't envision it, how are you actually going to create it? What are going to be the strategies put in place? So she's done a whole range of series of workshops that are focusing on very specific type of visioning and then backcasting from there, which helps with strategy development. I think that is one of the best ways. We already have a range of futures methods and we are already using them. So they can be a little bit more specifically applied to futures fallacies, depending on the group, depending on what's happening. They can be utilized to minimize either all of them, if we have a like a long course over the number of days or a very specific ones that are pertinent to that group or organization. And I really like uh, backcasting. It's one of my, my favorite tools. Um, but yeah, Ivana, thank you so much. Uh, I think I learned a lot just talking with you for almost, uh, almost an hour. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for being with me today and sharing your expertise with, uh, you know, at the briefing today and with everyone that uh, follow us and listen to, to us. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. The briefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. 